Mark Twain once said, most of the worst things that have happened to me never actually happened. Most of the worst things that have happened to me never actually happened. I think that probably hits close to home for many of us because if we're honest about it and we reflect back on the most stressful meetings we ever had, the surgeries we've had, the trials and tribulations of life, if we reflect on it objectively at all, I think we will agree that our fear of what was going to happen, our anticipation, our anxiety most of the time was worse than the event itself. We allow, instead of thinking our way into a faithful posture, a confident posture, a relaxed posture, we often fear and think our way into uh, a very anxious posture and make things even worse than they would be otherwise. One author put it this way, he said, most people suffer from pre-traumatic stress disorder. I thought that was a beautiful twist of phrase. That is not to minimize the reality of post-traumatic stress disorder, which is a, a very real thing and a very serious thing, but I love that twist of phrase, pre-traumatic stress disorder. We're so worried about what might happen, could happen, what happened last time, whatever, that our fear runs away with us and the worst things that happen to us are actually in our mind, not so much uh, in reality. Several years ago, someone wrote a book entitled The Worst Case Scenario Survival Handbook. The Worst Case Scenario Survival Handbook. And it sold 10 million copies. Can you believe that? It was all about what to do if you're ever attacked by a swarm of killer bees, which surely you would locate as they're stinging you, your copy of that handbook and uh, look it up as to what you're supposed to do while you're getting stung. Or if, you know, you happen to live in Hawaii and a text should go out, declaring that there's a nuclear blast on the way. You'll have 38 minutes to find your handbook. And I mean, as if you're going to be able to, to, you know, to remember what that handbook says. But it's interesting that that book was so successful because it speaks to the fact that many of us live lives that are consumed by fear, far more so than we would care to admit or far more so than we let on publicly. I think that is one of the many reasons why the Psalms have always been and will always be one of the most popular and most impactful portions of Scripture. When I was assigned to preach on fear, I knew exactly where to look because when I myself am going through a stressful time or experiencing fear or anxiety, I find again and again and again that God has a helpful word for me in the Psalter. And when I'm, you know, talking with somebody who's seeking my advice in those types of circumstances, I will often encourage them to dwell in the Psalms. The Psalms uh, see right through the facade that we put up. They cut right through to the heart of the matter. The psalmists know uh, that we're more fearful and anxious and, and stressed out than we let on publicly. And so I find that uh, the psalms often read like a journal entry if I had that gift of poetry, right? This is what I would want to say if I could be so poetic and so beautifully written. Uh, the psalms take the words right out of our mouth. They, they, they see between the lines. They, uh, they go between the, behind the, the, the mask that we wear and uh, they say what we are to say, what we wish we could say if we could put it into words, what we're really feeling, we don't even know we're feeling, what we can't articulate. And so the Psalms have much to teach us about such things. 
We have a, a very interesting relationship in our culture with fear. I'm always fascinated every uh, Halloween how we want to cultivate fear. You know, it's like in July, the billboards start going up. There will be a haunted corn maze, you know. Uh, I don't even know what a haunted corn maze is. I've never been in a corn maze. I've never been in a cornfield, but apparently some of them are haunted. Anyway, I don't know. That doesn't scare me. That doesn't do anything for me. But apparently some people, for whatever reason, feel the need in the month of October to go out in the corn and get scared. Anyway, uh, but I mean, like months. Months in advance, you know, there will be signs and billboards up advertising. There will be a haunted house at Billy Bob's backyard and come and you too can be chased around with a guy with a chainsaw. I mean, no thank you. I, I, I really, I like to avoid things like that. I'm not really looking for encounters with chainsaws. Uh, I don't even know how to use a chainsaw. Um, or horror movies. Now, I never was into horror movies, but I saw just enough horror movies when I was young to know that I'm not into horror movies. Just enough to, you know, still remember it 20 years later and think to myself, what on earth was I thinking? Why did I, why did I do that? We don't celebrate Halloween at our house because we have never seen anything redemptive in it. Uh, but our culture is fascinated by it. And it actually has a bigger and bigger hold every year on, uh, on our money. People spend more and more money uh, on Halloween. You know, it's interesting. Uh, you know, they say a fish can't see the water he's swimming in. Uh, and we're like that with our culture. All cultures are like that, right? We can't see the water we're swimming in. We, we can't step back and critique our culture. If you ever describe Halloween to someone from another country, it's really interesting the response that you get. Because they look at you like you're from Mars, you know? Like, so you dress like a witch and go around and get candy. Right. I mean, you know, I mean, it doesn't make any sense, but, uh, but we don't question it because we grew up and, hey, it involves candy. So any questions that we might have are surely alleviated by the sugar high. Um, but it's interesting. <clears throat> There's a relationship between control and fear. Uh, we often act in fear out of a desire to control, but we want to be able to control our fears. And I think that's one of the reasons why Halloween is so popular, uh, because we know it's just a movie, right? We know the guy with the chainsaw isn't really going to cut us with the chainsaw. I mean, at least somewhat we know that, right? You know, we're going to go on a hayride afterwards. It's going to be cool. Uh, everything's fine. And so we want to invoke that fear and kind of get that endorphin rush, kind of get that high as long as it's under control and not Real. It's almost like we want to flirt with it. We want to touch that fear, you know, get that sort of emotional rush uh, without actually uh, having to worry about danger. Of course, we can't admit that we're afraid. That's an interesting contrast in our culture, especially for men, you know. Be afraid, but don't dare admit that you're afraid, you know. Uh, we can't do that. In some ways, I'm even more concerned about the fear-mongering that goes on in our advertisements. I mean, at least with a haunted house or a scary movie, you kind of know what you're in for and you deliberately paid for that, you know? But there's a lot of fear that is foisted upon us in advertisements that we don't even realize is being foisted upon us. And I fear for us, as, poor choice of words, I fear for us. Anyway, uh, I did not mean to say that, but I, um, I'm concerned that... Uh, when we inundate ourselves too much with advertisements, we're drinking in fear more than we realize it because so much of what our culture is based around is about selling fear. Like for example, you've probably seen those Allstate commercials where mayhem is personified by that stunt man in the black suit, right? I'm mayhem, I'm about to set your grill on fire at the tailgate or whatever. Um, you know, it's funny and all that and it's memorable, but. Look, I've got insurance, I've got health insurance, life insurance, car insurance, all that stuff, okay? I mean, I'm not against insurance, but I am against us wandering around worrying about what could happen, what might happen, oh my goodness, you know? Uh, and being, you know, I mean, you could spend your whole paycheck on insurance if you watch too many commercials, because they'd have you convinced. 
that, uh, you know, that you should be afraid, be very afraid. Uh, you know, retirement as we know it is largely a modern American invention. Uh, but somehow or another, we're convinced that if we are not successful enough to retire on the beaches of Hawaii and play all the golf we want, then, you know, we should be very concerned about that. Uh, I am definitely not going to retire on the beaches of Hawaii if I get to retire at all. And I'm not concerned about that. If the, you know, if the, uh, I, ha I do have a retirement account, it's an 01K. Um, that's because there's nothing in it, but I got it anyhow. But, um, you know, uh, if the retirement people and the investment gurus had their way, I would have to work 24 hours a day to afford that golden retirement. Apparently I should be fearful that my retirement will not measure up. Or what about our health? Goodness grief. You know, we're all so body conscious and our bodies, uh, you know, tend to malfunction and, and decline. Um, and so forth uh, eventually as the years roll on. And so we're all worried about that. And so we spend hundreds of dollars preventing what might happen. Could it? Look, I mean, I take vitamins. I invest in my retirement. I've got insurance. I'm not suggesting we shouldn't do those things. But I am suggesting that if our mentality is dictated to us by our culture, we are going to be very fearful people in an unbiblical way. The late, great Neil Pulsman, one of the one of my favorite writers, brilliant social critic, he said, the advertiser does not need to know what's right about the product. He needs to know what's wrong about the buyer. <laughs> the advertiser does not need to know what's right about the product. He just needs to know what's wrong about the buyer. Because that's what they're really selling, is what's wrong with you. And if you're not aware of this, we're going to make you aware of it and then give you a fear or a worry that you otherwise would not have known even existed. Uh, now, we've gotten more organized about that in the modern world. But this has been part and parcel of the human condition since the very beginning. Uh, if you think about Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, the serpent encouraged them uh, to be fearful that they couldn't trust God. Did God really say that? Surely you will not die. Maybe he didn't mean it. Maybe God is jealous and, and insecure like you are, uh, and he's concerned that you'll become too much like him and be a competitor, so let me tell you what you really should do. And so Adam and Eve are now fearful. Maybe we can't trust God. Maybe God doesn't know what's in our best interest. Maybe God is trying to withhold some good thing from us. Maybe it really would be better for us to be more like God than God seems to have intended when he created us originally. And so they are fearful and they want to control the situation and they reach out and grab that apple. Uh, I got to thinking this, this week that so much fear is rooted in the desire to control what we can't control, right? So much fear is rooted in the desire to control what we can't control. I mean, uh, you take your health, for example. You can eat right and exercise and sleep right and everything else, but guess what? You're still going to get old. And one day we're all going to pass away. I mean, we're all terminal. Some of us are terminal in the long run. Some of us are terminal in the not too distant future. But guess what? No matter what you do, eventually all of us are going to grow old and die. I have three daughters, an eight-year-old, a seven-year-old, and a little Hopi, uh, my three-year-old. And everybody told us uh, before we had kids that the day will come when you will not want them to get any older especially your youngest. And I didn't believe that, especially when they were younger and we were both, you know, both the older girls were in diapers. I couldn't wait for them to get older. But now they're at a good age because the eight-year-old and seven-year-old can kind of help and do a little bit and hope he's so cute, you know? And, and I tell her all the time when I drop her off here at preschool, I say, now don't you grow up today. Don't you do any growing up today. And uh, yesterday I fixed him some pancakes at the house and hope he got to use the birthday plate, which we only need three times a year, but 
you know, once for each of their birthdays, but they fight over who gets to use the birthday plate on other times. But they agreed Hope he could use it because her birthday's coming up next in June, in case you're wondering, if you meet her, she'll be glad to tell you that my birthday's in June. Um, and I said, well, I don't know if I'm gonna let your birthday come. Oh, daddy, I wanna have my, okay, one more birthday, then I'm gonna hit the pause button. But I can't control that. She's getting older and so am I. <laughs> and the day will come when uh, she's grown up and well, um, I'll be like y'all. Anyhow, um, <clears throat> you know I told him that at the nine o'clock service and that's all anybody commented about on the way out was how I hurt their feelings. Oh my goodness. All right, we're all getting old. Now what was I talking about? I've lost my train of thought. Oh yes. There was a relationship though between fear and control, right? We know we aren't in control. I mean, some of us are really out of control, but even for those of us that, you know, things are pretty good, there's money in the bank, we're employed, things are good in our marriage, we're still out of control. We can't, we can't push pause and stop time. We can't help the stock market possibly from crashing, right? I mean, there's all kinds of things that are out of our control. And the psalmist knew all this, and so we are fearful about it as human beings. We are uh, now in the season of Lent, uh, which is an appropriate time to be talking about fear because the original Lent uh, was full of fear. Now, Lent, of course, is a season on the church calendar when we prepare ourselves to celebrate uh, Jesus' death and resurrection. But we dare not forget the original Lent, <laughs> when the death and resurrection first occurred, uh, was not a celebration. It was a very fearful time. For one thing, Rome ruled by fear. Rome essentially practiced psychological warfare. Uh, they had a massive empire, and of course, they couldn't possibly have, you know, a thousand soldiers stationed in Bethlehem in every little out-of-the-way little town. But what they would do is they would station just enough soldiers to remind you that they were in charge, and that if you rebelled, eventually they would send a bunch of soldiers and utterly crush you. <laughs> and when someone did rebel against Rome, they crushed them so badly that word spread around, don't mess with them. And so even though there might be a thousand of you in the town and only three soldiers, the reason why you didn't revolt was because eventually they would send 10,000 soldiers and level your town and hang you on a cross. Rome ruled by fear. And so there was a lot of fear in the air uh, in the pages of the New Testament. And we uh, do ourselves a favor by remembering that as we read it. And we see that very clearly. For example, when Jesus says, I'm going to go up to Jerusalem and suffer and die. And what do the disciples say? Never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. They're fearful because they cannot control what is going to happen to this rabbi they've been following for three years. This is not something they're excited about. This is something they want to change if they can, and they can't. And then James and John are concerned that maybe their incredible skills will not be adequately uh, recognized. They know they can't control what kind of reward they're going to get when Jesus enters into his kingdom. And so they ask him, you know, fearfully, can we sit on your right and your left? Right? And then, of course, probably the best example is on the night that Jesus is betrayed and the soldiers come to arrest him. And what happens? Peter very fearfully panics and pulls out his sword and whacks off the, uh, the ear uh, of the high priest's servant. Now, that's sort of an irrational action. I mean, as if like this ragamuffin group of fishermen are somehow going to like take over all these soldiers, you know. But hey, if we were there, we'd have probably done the same thing. He's fearful because he doesn't want something to happen to Jesus that's beyond his control. He frankly doesn't want Jesus to be the type of Messiah who dies. That's not on their agenda. 
He's concerned about Jesus suffering physical pain. And then when he sees that Jesus is not going to do anything about it, God is not going to send a legion of angels down. What happens? All the disciples forsake him and flee for their lives. Fear. Very much a common human problem. Uh, Now, having said that, we often make the mistake of assuming this is the way things are, so it must be the way things are supposed to be. It's incredible to me how often we make that mistake, not just about this, but about all kinds of things. I mean, we serve a God who says, look, this is a broken and fallen world, and the way things are is not the way that I want them to be. And the business of the church is to take a look at the way things are and take a look at the way things will be in the New Jerusalem, not in fallen Babylon where we currently live, but in the New Jerusalem when God sets everything right. And what can we do to orchestrate that as much as possible now? The, body of the, the job of the church is not to surrender to the way things are. The job of the church is to bear witness to the way things ought to be and will be one day. That is true corporately, and it's also true in our individual lives. It's true of fear, and it's true of any number of things. But how often do we fall prey to saying, well, you know, I've always been fearful. Everybody I know is fearful. My parents were fearful, whatever. Um, and so I guess that's just the way it is. Well, I don't see anywhere in Scripture where we're supposed to resign ourselves to fear. The only fear I find in the Bible that we are encouraged to have is the fear of God, which we'll be talking about in a moment. The fear of God is a good and holy thing, and out of that flows a confidence that empowers us to overcome the fear of other people and other things in our life. The fear of God is something that we ought to cultivate and pursue. But all other fears, the Bible tells us again and again and again that we are not to have them. Uh, Paul says that uh, peace and patience are fruit of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Fear is a fruit of unbelief. It's not something that we're supposed to resign ourselves to. It's something that we are supposed to proactively work against. Now, the psalm we're examining this morning, Psalm 27, is a psalm of David. And David has a lot to teach us about fear. On the one hand, David was a great champion and a great warrior who overcame fear. You'll remember that when David presents himself to Saul and volunteers to go and kill Goliath, you know, this great giant that everybody's so afraid of, he says to him, I've been guarding my father's sheep and I have killed both the lion and the bear. Right With my bare hands, I have killed these wild animals to defend my father's sheep. Very brave man. And then he charges Goliath and mocks him and says he's going to kill him. And then he does very brave, right? Overcomes a lot of his fear. And then we find that David is not only himself a great warrior, he's also a great general, a great leader of legendary warriors. Uh, And so the people will sing, Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. This great, mighty uh, military general that takes Israel to new heights. But then we also find that David, like any other man, is susceptible to sin, and he succumbs to the temptation with Bathsheba, and he never fully recovers from that. And in fact, after that, he flees for his life from his son, Absalom, uh, really kind of in an irrational, panicked kind of way. So we see that David, even though he's a, an incredible man in so many ways, he's not superhuman. On the one hand, he overcame a lot of fears, but on the other hand, he was also susceptible to fears and succumbed to them uh, at times as well. Just like many of us, right? Just like so many of us. There's times when things are going well, we feel confident. There's times when things are not so well and we just don't know how we're going to make it through the next day. We're fearful, we're anxious, we're worried, we're panicked, right? And everywhere in between. So David, and David in particular, and this Yes, David and the Psalms in general, and this Psalm in particular, has much, I think, to teach us about fear. If I could summarize this Psalm in one sentence, it would be this. 
If you fear God, you won't have to fear other things. If you fear God, you won't have to fear other things. If you have an appropriate awe and reverence, a suitable respect, that's what the Bible means when it speaks of the fear of God. Not this presumptive, casual, here I am, Lord, you're lucky to have me, but rather a humble, bowed, here I am, Lord, a wicked and sinful man. If you have that type of fear, reverence, awe, respect for God and, and pursue a relationship with him from that type of posture, then living out of that, you will find that you can overcome the fear of man and the fear of other circumstances that might assail you. In verse one of this Psalm, David begins by saying, the Lord is my light. Now it's interesting, you know, here's this great uh, warrior, uh, but he's afraid of the dark, <laughs> right? Uh, you know, David lived in a very dark world, both metaphorically and literally. Uh, we live in a, you know, you know, in a world with electronic lights, stoplights, street lights, electronic signs, all this kind of stuff. So we live in a very lit up world, right? I mean, David lived in a time when if you wanted a light, you had to build a fire or have an oil lamp. That was, you know, revolutionary uh, technology. Um, but it's interesting that then as now, there's a natural fear of the dark. You know, that was thousands of years ago, and we live in a very different culture in a lot of different ways, but that basic imagery, it's one thing that fascinates me about the Bible. The basic metaphors and, and imagery in the Bible still rings just as true now as it did the day it was written. And so David says, the Lord is my light. It's true, isn't it? I mean, when you drive at night, maybe you're a little bit more careful, especially if you're on an unfamiliar road because you can't see as well. You get up in the middle of the night, you go use the bathroom, you bump into something, you hear something, what the heck is that? Children, of course, are notorious for being scared of the dark and, and, and so forth, right? Uh, it's, it's still true even to this day that there's this sort of natural fear of light. Uh, if you've ever gone camping, you know that in the woods, it gets dark quick because of all the trees, especially if you're deep in the forest. Uh, my brother and I went uh, backpacking several years ago and we were ill-prepared. We were in uh, the Red River Gorge wilderness in Kentucky in the middle of nowhere. And uh, like an idiot, I had put my flashlight on the bottom of my backpack. Don't do that. If you ever go camping, do not put your flashlight somewhere where it's hard to access. And if it begins to get dark, go ahead and get your flashlight out, okay? This is words from the wise, just, you know, sort of practical experience here. And also, uh, if you get to a campsite in the Red River Gorge or anywhere else for that matter, and it's starting to get dark, do not try to push on to the next campsite. Settle for the good enough campsite, make up the distance the next day because you don't wanna wind up like my brother and I did, uh, fumbling haphazardly, insanely through my backpack, desperately trying to find my flashlight and having to pitch a tent on the side of the trail. Uh, so, <laughs> light is a very good thing and in times like that you begin to experience the value of it at a whole different level. David said, the Lord is my light. When darkness is around me, it is the Lord that gives me the perspective that I need, the ability to see clearly when I'm not sure where to go or how to go. It's the Lord that directs my steps and shows me where the path is. The Lord is my light in the midst of dark times. Then David goes on to say, the Lord is my salvation. The Lord is my salvation. Now, uh, in modern American theology, we tend to think of that as pie in the sky, by and by. I'm going to heaven. Well, David, that's not what he meant. What David meant was my salvation right here in the right now, in this life, I am counting on God to deliver me from my adversaries and from what I am facing. David had, uh, and in the Old Testament in general, they had a very direct 
here and now type of understanding uh, of salvation that God was going to deliver them right now. Let's look together uh, for, for an example of this. In verse 13, David spells this out a little bit more. Verse 13, uh, I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Lord is my salvation. And then, in case we didn't get it, in case those two, uh, you know, metaphors were not quite strong enough, David goes on to say, the Lord is my defense. The Lord is my light. The Lord is my salvation. The Lord is my defense. It's the Lord I'm counting on to show me how I should walk. It's the Lord I'm counting on ultimately to save me from my foes. It's the Lord I'm counting on to defend me from calamities and from adversaries and so forth. Now, David, of course, Mostly meant that very literally. And, you know, he had political enemies that were out to get him. He had military enemies. But I think it, it bears true, no matter who we are or what we might face in life, right, that, uh, that we've got to be able to depend on the Lord. Now, here's the thing. We say we want to overcome our fears. We say we don't want to be a fearful people. But are we willing to truly say that the Lord is my light, my salvation, and my defense? I mean, really say it. <laughs> it's one thing, say, to read it responsibly if we were reading this psalm responsibly or to, to read it together as we, you know, approach the word on, on a Sunday morning. But it's something different for this to truly be a psalm of our life. When I was, and to, and to truly reflect, not just the desire of our heart, the attitude of our heart, but to truly reflect even how we live. When I was teaching high school Bible uh, and we got to the Psalter, I would always have the students write their own psalm. We would talk in class about, you know, the nature of Psalms and give some examples, the structure of Psalms. And then their assignment was to go out and actually write their own Psalm based on a real life struggle. That was their, not their favorite, because high school kids don't have favorite assignments, but that was the least bad assignment. And it was probably my favorite assignment to grade because they were engaging with the Word of God in a real way. I would challenge you to think about that, friends. If you were to go home tonight and think about something you're facing or, or a serious situation you faced in the past, would you be able to write this? Not in a pious, flowery language, but I mean, really, would this reflect the, the attitude, the reality of your heart? Uh, the Lord is my light, my salvation, and my defense. If we want to overcome a fearful attitude in our life, if we want to have a biblical approach to life, we've got to get to a point where we can really say that and mean it. And I have found that uh, the Lord is so jealous for us, not jealous like we are, but jealous in a good way. God cares deeply, passionately about our best interests and about having a relationship with him. He's so jealous for us that uh, if we have other lights and other sources of salvation and other defenses that we're really uh, depending on, God has a way of pulling those out of our life. <laughs> and you know what we do when they start to leave? We hold on to them desperately. We're, we're very slow learners when it comes to this because we want our light and our defense and our salvation to be something we've created for ourselves, something we've earned. And so we think, well, I'll work a little harder and you know, make this work for myself. But God really wants to be our light, our salvation, our defense, the one true rock that we cling to in all times. Now, I want us to look together at verse four. I think verse four really reveals the essence of this psalm and the heart uh, of what it means to really fear God and to worship God appropriately. Here's what David says. One thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. You will notice David does not say, one thing have I asked of the Lord, that I'll have an easy, comfortable, convenient life from here on out. 
One thing have I asked of the Lord, that I'd have no need for him to be my light, my salvation, and my defense, because that's hard. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that I would no longer have any adversaries, because I don't really like putting up with it. No, David knew that such trials and tribulations and adversaries and calamities, all of that's inevitable. I don't see anywhere in the Bible except in heaven where God's protection saves us from those things. I do see plenty of examples where we are admonished to respond to those things in a faithful manner. If we were to turn back a few pages, you know where we'd be at the greatest Psalm of all, Psalm 23, where David gives us that great line, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil. It does not say, yea, though I go around. I've, I've, I've seen the valley of the shadow of death. It's a real place. He doesn't say, yea, though I walk on the rim of the canyon and look down in it. <laughs> yea, though I tunnel under it. Yea, though I go around the long way so I don't have to go that way. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, David says. It's not a matter of avoiding pain, avoiding things that, ought to, that might cause us to be fearful. It's a matter of how we respond to them. And I think this verse is such a, a beautiful example of what having a fearful attitude towards God looks like in worship, right? Uh, I, I think one of the reasons why we struggle so much and why we, we have other sources of light and salvation and defense is because we struggle to really worship God in heartfelt, powerful ways. I want you to pay attention to what David says. He does not say, uh, Lord, I want to have a goosebump experience this Sunday, he does not say, Lord, I want the preacher to tickle my ears this Sunday. Lord, I want to sing all my favorite hymns, or for that matter, my favorite praise songs, or Lord, I want my favorite preacher. He does not say, Lord, I need something practical that I am wanting to learn anyway, and if you, you know, give me this, then I'll know you've spoken to me, and if not, I don't know if I'm going to go back next Sunday, because I'm not sure if it's a good use of time. No, he says, I just want to be in the presence of the Lord right? This isn't about practical. This isn't about relevant. This isn't about his preferences, his needs, his enjoyment. This is about basking in the presence of the one true God, come what may. And that's what worship is all about, friends. Worship is not about, you know, did you have a good time? Did you get something out of it? Did you have a goosebump experience? Did you see your friends? Worship is about being in the presence of the living God. And David knew that. That, that is a fearful a, a, an attitude uh, that fears God appropriately and takes that attitude into worship. Not about, this is about me, you know, too often. That's the thing. Everything in our culture is about us, right? <laughs> and we approach worship that way. This is about me. How can I be served here? What can I get out of this? You know, am I liking this? If not, you know, if I don't like this the way I like television, then something must be wrong. That's not what we find in the scriptures, friends. Worship is about revealing how much your God is worth. That's the literal meaning of the term. Well, there's also a relationship between worship and work, <laughs> not worship and play. <laughs> worship and work. David says that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. He does not say that things will always go well and it will all be, always be fun and games. He says, I want to be in the presence of God. Come what may, God is worth it. He's worth my time. He's worth my uh, best efforts. He's worth my offering of myself as a living sacrifice. I remember the first time I heard this, I was kind of offended by it because I was a busy seminary student. But there really is a sense in which worship is a holy waste of time. 
<laughs> Part of the point of worship is precisely that we, that it's not practical or relevant. Part of the point of worship is precisely that we present ourselves before God and we say, we are giving you this time, regardless of what's in it for us or whether we get something back or not. We just want to be in your presence, God, and we trust that over the course of time, you will then form us into the kind of person who is capable of living without fear, who's capable of living victoriously, little by little, day by day. We want to be faithful regardless of how we feel. You see what a different attitude that is than, than we have too often in our culture? That's what I mean when I say fearing God and approaching worship out of that type of posture. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. In verse 14, David also speaks to this. He says, wait for the Lord, be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. Now, if you're like me, uh, when you think of waiting for the Lord, you know, you think of like, what, five minutes, 10 minutes? I mean, how, you know, what do you mean by wait for the Lord? Like, you know, I mean, if he doesn't show up immediately, that's okay. But after a few minutes, we're out of here. <laughs> I mean, David means more of like an attitude of life. David's not talking about a matter of minutes. David's talking about an approach to life that waits for the Lord instead of trying to force the Lord or grasp or do what we have already determined uh, that we want to do. Now, having said that, I will give you one practical word from, uh, from this psalm. In verse 6, uh, the end of verse 6, David says, I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. And I do want to call your attention to that and harp on it for a moment. This is kind of a soapbox issue for me. Uh, it's been so meaningful in my life that I would be remiss if I didn't share it with you. Uh, I have a saying, when in doubt, sing. <laughs> when in doubt, sing. Now, let me tell you something. Nobody sings worse than I do, but that's not the point. The point is a, make a joyful noise to the Lord does not mean you have to sing like Jack does in perfect harmony and pitch. I mean, look, when I think of pitch, I think about baseball, okay? You know what I'm saying? I mean, I, I don't know anybody in harmony, pitch, tune, tone. I don't know about that. But what I do know is about pouring your guts out before God. What I do know is about belting it out and not worrying about how you sound, but but pouring your soul out before God. What I do know is that in the Christian life, second only to the Bible itself, the most important book is the hymnal. Second only to the Bible itself, the most important book is the hymnal. If you don't have a hymnal in your home, you should get one today. I'm serious. There, there should never be a Christian home that does not have a hymnal. Uh, my kids know sometimes I will come home and I will say, kids, daddy needs to sing. And they know what that means. Daddy's had a bad day. And we're going to sing together as a family. And I don't tell them what's bothering me. But they know that we're going to spend some time worshiping. We're going to worship out the pain. Because I find, especially the great hymns um, that, uh, that have stood the test of time, I find that they say what I ought to say. <laughs> they say what I know I should say, but I'm not feeling right now. They help me get to that perspective that I don't have, but know in theory I ought to have, wish I had, right? They, they put the words, you, you sing the words until you actually believe the words. And I'm not talking about just one or two hymns. I, I, I try to sing at least one hymn every day, but there are times where <laughs> I have to sequester myself away so that nobody calls an ambulance because they're thinking my neighbor's dying. Um, you know, uh, but there are times where I will sequester myself away and sing for long stretches of time until I'm hoarse. You've never done that. You need to. I'm not even kidding. If you don't have a hymnal, you need to get one today. It's the second most important book in the Christian life, second only to the Bible itself. When in doubt, 
sing. When in doubt, sing. So important in overcoming fear, in overcoming stress, pivotally important in the Christian life. Last but certainly not least, I'll leave you with this thought. And this also is somewhat of a practical word. You know, I find that God, uh, God blesses us in that, you know, I spoke a moment ago about having that fearful attitude, that reverent attitude, uh, where we are worshiping God for God's own sake, not for the sake of what we can get out of it, but I always find that God is faithful to meet us in that. And in verse nine, we find these words. Do not hide thy face from me. Do not turn thy servant away in anger. Thou hast been my help. Do not abandon me nor forsake me, O God of my salvation. You know, um, I've been to seminary and I love theology and Bible and all this stuff. But you know, when things are not going well in my life, when I'm stressed out, I find that I'm most comforted by the simple, plain truths that I learned when I was a kid. Not to say the other stuff isn't important, because it is, but I find that more and more I want to cling to the simple, plain truths, the plain promises of God. And one of those is this, that God is always for us. God is never against us. God always has his face turned toward us. God is always listening to us. God never turns his back on us. God never leaves. We might leave him. (laughs) We might backslide. We might feel like God has forsaken us, but that is not the reality. God is always facing us. God is always pursuing us and coming toward us. What shall separate us from the love of God and Jesus Christ? Nothing. These basic truths, so important to meditate on and to remember as we seek to overcome a life of fear and instead to live a life of faithfulness. When I was visiting seminaries, uh, they would give us a gift in honor of our visit. Usually it was a book or something. And when I went to Asbury Theological Seminary, uh, Maxie Dunham was the president there. Maxie is uh, semi-retired now, one of the great heroes of our United Methodist faith. And uh, Maxie had been the the pastor at Christ United Methodist Church in Memphis, where Bill Balknight was his successor, our very own Bill Balknight. But while Maxie was there in 1989, he wrote a great book, Living the Psalms, which then he turned also into a Bible study. Uh, And and that was their gift to me, and I I read it. Maxie tells a lot of incredible stories and just opens up the Psalms in such powerful ways in that book. But one of the stories that he shares in that book that I think is really apt for this morning is of a young man who lost his wife, which I think most of us, if we're married, uh, you know, one of the biggest fears you have in life is, is losing your spouse or losing your children. I mean, it doesn't get much worse than that. And so this young man had a son, and at an early age, unexpectedly, shockingly, all of a sudden found himself to be a widower. And he and the son went, of course, to the funeral and had to bury his wife and his son's mom, and went home in utter despair, as I'm sure you can imagine. Not sure what to do, not sure what to say. And you've been there, right? When you face a death and you're just confused, you can't even think. And so the the father said to his son, son, let's just go on to bed, because I don't know what to say, I don't know what else to do, let's just go on to bed. He didn't know what else to do. It was early, but they just went on to bed. And the son snuggled up with his father in bed. He was trying to comfort him, had no idea, how am I gonna be a father and a mother? How am I gonna carry on? And the young son, even though he was at the funeral, he did what children do in that situation. He said, where's mommy? Where's mommy? When is mommy coming home? And the father didn't know what to say. You know, how do you explain this to a kid that mommy's not coming home? And we buried our son, it's it's over. Mommy will never come. How do you explain that to a kid? And no matter what the father said, the son kept repeating that question and crying, where's mommy? And finally, 
the father and the son were both laying on their sides, you know, facing each other in bed. And after a while of this, asking this question and crying, the little boy reached out his hand in the darkness and touched his father's face. And he said, Daddy, is your face towards me? And the father said, yes. And the son patted his daddy's face and rubbed it. And he said, Daddy, as long as your face is towards me, I think I can sleep. And the boy drifted off to sleep. And the father laid there and he thought, wow, what a profound truth out of the mouth of my little son. And he prayed to his heavenly father. And he said to his heavenly father, Daddy, I don't know how I'm going to make it through. But as long as your face is towards me, I know I can. Friends, that's a promise we can cling to as we seek to overcome a life of fear and live a life of faith. And if you don't remember anything else, remember this, the face of God is always toward us.